0: Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots.
1: Welcome to... Anachronismo.
2: Anachronismo!
1: I'm Jackie.
0: I'm Max. I'm Noel.
1: And today I'm going to be talking about the King of Bath.
0: And I'm going to be talking about the Indian Customs Hedge. And I'm going to be talking about the surrender of Guam. Ooh, Guam.
1: That sounds sad.
2: No, it's a delightful, cheery story of...
1: <laughs> Surrendering. Wartime.
0: Yeah. Surrendering. Guam. That's all I know so far.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. I know anything about Guam. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. You probably haven't researched. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's
2: how to really sell me out.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm continuing my my habit of terrible things the British did, and also uh, around the various household condiments slash uh, spices.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like this theme.
0: <laughs> you know, I I got a niche. I got to burrow in like a cozy badger. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um. So my story is also about Britain. Because if our listeners don't know, I just went on a week-long vacation to the United Kingdom with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we made a nice little stop in Bath, a spa, a spa town.
0: Oh, I love Bath.
1: It was very pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous pretty. there. So, you may know that I'm going to be talking about the charismatic king of Bath, Mr. Bonash.
0: <laughs> Good old bonish. Bonish. Bonash. Bonash. Uh, Bonash. Well, his name
1: is Robert. Mm. No, Richard? Not something with an R. Mm. It's not as fun as Old Dick Nash. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Bo Nash. So Bath is a small spa town um, outside of London, and it really became popular during the Georgian period. Um, it was the place for out-of-town, uh, out-of-London socializing and other kinds of activity. Um, there are natural spa waters and, like, hot springs there. Um, and it really drew aristocracy, the royalty, and commoners all together to kind of bathe in these waters that were said to have um, magic, not magic, um, healing, healing properties. Yeah,
0: yeah. It used to be like, oh, you got some gout? Go take a dip in the old bath baths, you know.
1: Take some water. Drink some it. Water.
0: Take, take in the waters. Just let yourself, ooh, just melt away in those sweet natural hot springs. Feel your
1: rheumatoid arthritis drift away from you <laughs> <laughs> and then hit the person next to you in the
2: spot <laughs> yeah how many people got sick coming out of bath like i can
1: <laughs> it's like a very it was thought to be a very healthy thing i don't yeah. think people got sick from it yeah.
2: well they we probably got sick after they got back and they're like ah
0: i didn't stay long
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. better go take them waters again
0: mm-hmm. that's how they get you by back bathing over and over <laughs>
1: <laughs> so basically bath became a really popular between in the 1700s to the 1800s, it grew from a city of 2,000 people to 30,000 people in about 100 years. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big jump. Jump. Um, and three men are considered the like people who popularized it. Ralph Allen, he was a postmaster who made a huge fortune revamping the postal system, um, and he basically funded the building of Bath. He made himself a gigantic mansion and was like, I want to be seen by all the people of Bath and be able to see all the people of Bath.
0: (laughs) And I want to see everything. (laughs) So uh, there's going to be telescopes in every balcony.
1: (laughs) Uh, Creepy. creepy.
0: I mean, it started pretty creepy. I just brought to light what was on. Handling (laughs) their mail is not enough. I can't get my
2: kicks anymore.
1: (laughs) No, it was supposed to be a thing of grandeur, of being like everyone's going to see my giant house, that and I'm going to be able to look over everyone. House. All right, John Wood was an architect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> John Wood is the second guy. He's an architect. Um, his son was also involved in this. John Wood Senior and Junior, and he transformed Bath. He built like these famous North and South Parades and the famous Queen Square. And then Bo Nash is the third guy who rounded this out. He was the master of ceremonies. He was basically the social calendar man for Bath, um, which it was unclear to me from the things that I read if this was, was an official position or not, or if he kind of just <laughs> was like, I'm, there was someone called the master of ceremonies, but it was more of like a invented position. It wasn't like something salaried or built.
0: So old Bo Nash might've been the guy who just like went from town to town being like, hey, we're having a rad party. Do you want to come down? Come on, come on! Everyone cool is going to be there. Do anybody cool?
1: Sort, but think more exclusive. One of his things that he was famous for was meeting new people who came to town. Yeah, and deciding if they should be part of the company, which was like the big group of people—the five hundred or so people who made up the social scene—and oh. he would like judge if you would be able to join this group or not. So he's
2: like a homeowners association. He's the
1: gatekeeper of the fashionable. Wow, stylish. He was known for his flamboyant outfits. So at the time, the popular thing to wear was um, white wigs. And he was like, no, 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 I'm <laughs> making my own style. So he wore a black wig and then wore a furred and bejeweled hat at a jaunty angle
0: oh beautiful he was
1: one of the first people to wear his coat open so as to show off his waistcoat and his ruffly shirt Ooh. Yeah.
0: yeah the
2: thing is in this description all i'm picturing in my head is captain hook
1: <laughs> he did he looked like a chubby version of captain hook
0: and he did have a hook for hand and he was afraid of crocodiles and he was afraid of Small boys flying through his
2: town and <laughs> crossing a ruckus with a bunch of other homeless children.
1: <laughs> so what are my favorite? There's just, that...
2: wait, sorry, and there's just this like big alligator he's scared of in one of the baths, just floating around. <laughs> it's like I can't go in the bath. Why not? There's a there's an alligator in there, it's gonna get me, it's gonna take my other hand. It's like Bonash, oh, you're silly. What's an alligator? We're in England. <laughs>
0: It's just a bunch of uh, dudes wearing a bunch of papier mache painted green. <laughs> and it's like slowly dissolving in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it comes in here soon.
1: This costume's not going to last.
0: I really want to <laughs> cut off that
2: guy's other
1: hand. So, one of the other fashion things he did was he um, didn't like men's boots. So he just decided one day that that wasn't going to be something that was fashionable anymore, and he just spread the word and advocated to men that they should wear regular shoes and, um, and stockings instead. And, like, put bows and stuff on their shoes instead. And it caught on. (laughs) It became a thing. And everyone was like, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Nash. We can now dance more easily instead of wearing our big clumsy boots at the dances.
0: (laughs) Mr. Nash, you brought back the joy of dance to this small town. How can we ever repay you? (laughs)
1: Like, he was just a big social influencer. He sounds great. So he, he found his calling pretty much in this role because he had went to school, dropped out, he joined the army, he dropped out, he became a lawyer, dropped out. Like he, he didn't, he didn't find his niche, niche.
0: Kissed a lot of frogs before he found his prince. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he like enjoyed the army because it, when he was in the army because it let him like make all these societal connections but he didn't enjoy the army itself he felt like the duties of the army were getting in the way of his social connections that he was making
2: it's It's not fashionable to shoot other men anymore (laughs) in the trenches we uh
0: boy being in the army would be great if it weren't for all the bullets
2: (laughs) we should replace the bullets with puppy (laughs) dogs uh I (laughs) think in that situation they still have the bayonets, though. They're like they're too close. We can't shoot puppies at them. Oh, there's a lot of blood on this dog. (laughs) (laughs) The puppies are fine. (laughs) Jackie, you look so sad. You
1: killed a puppy.
2: Okay, wow. Jackie's been on a pro puppy. (laughs) (laughs) To share the story. Okay, I told. When Jackie got back from England, I told her that um, that I had puppies, but they were inside me, and without a beat, she just walked over and pretended to start carving me open, saying, I'm saving the puppies.
0: Oh, those poor dogs. Yeah. yeah.
1: They don't want to be in there.
0: No, no, it's dark in there. They're scared. Puppies aren't great night vision. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But everything's edible.
0: Yeah. It's true. They probably would have eaten their way out. Uh,
2: I think that was one of the, the jokes, but you still insisted on.
1: Yeah,
2: stabbing your way through me to get to the
0: puppies.
1: You set up this situation. You followed
2: through like spectacularly.
0: <laughs> your relationship is <was> beautiful <laughs> you too. Uh. So, Bojangles, Bonash, Bo-nash did,
2: Bonash did not like the army.
1: Yeah, he, his strength was in being a social person and setting up situations for people to have a good time and enjoy themselves. Um, one of his favorite things was gambling. Um, his Also, his other jobs got in the way of his gambling. So as a as a social... I almost said social organizer, but that's a different thing. <laughs> he was able to put his loves of being a social person and gambling together. <laughs>
0: you know, it's so nice when things work out that way.
1: Yeah, it's great. You
0: could gamble on how many people show up to a party... You could party with a bunch of dice am i am i getting warm here (laughs)
1: um yeah yeah you are he he commissioned actually the bath assembly there's another word in the title of this building but i I can't see it
0: yep that's a scribble
1: (laughs) So anyway, he commissioned this building in 1708, and it became the central venue for dancing, gambling, and listening to music. So he would bring in performers to come visit from London. He would basically just set up all these fun things. And at the time, people would bathe in the spas in the early morning, and you'd be finished by 9 o'clock, leaving your whole day open for Beau to fill your social calendar (laughs) and encourage you to gamble. And he was a notorious gambler. There were a lot of rumors about how he was making money, because his his position was not really an official position, so he wasn't, like, getting a salary for being social chair of the city. So there's one story about how he gambled and he won 1,400 pounds, which... Oh, sorry, that he lost 1,400 pounds, which is uh, five years of income for a middle-class family at the time, which is just... Insane. So people had all these speculations about where he was getting his money from. There was one rumor that he had won the entire estate of an aristocrat in gambling, and he never called in his winnings. So as a, as a sign of gratitude, the aristocrat just gave him a lifetime of income for not taking his estate. <laughs> so that was just a rumor. It's more likely that he, um, he either split the winnings of the, with the man who owned that assembly that I talked mm-hmm. about before, um, that he would just split the winnings with that guy or that he took part of the subscription fees that the, uh, social circle would pay. Like they would pay to have a table always at the big mm-hmm. restaurants, mm-hmm. pay to always have a, a seat at the balls and all that. So those are more likely where his income came from. Um, <clears throat> But in 1739, a new law was put in place that banned certain types of gaming and gambling. And this basically destroyed Bo Nash's um, income because gambling (laughs) was banned. Um, And, you know, he was getting money either from his winnings or losings. So he was basically destroyed. And then people started being like, all his money was from gambling? Who have we been consorting with? (laughs) So So he started to fall out of favor. Um and so people were like offended that gambling had been his prime income. So this is kind of his his didn't
0: decline. Did sell a single malt beverage or try to sell bath souvenirs? It was all gambling. No Everything.
2: bones of the saints being so.
0: he <laughs> didn't sell a single single fragment of a true cross anywhere. Yeah.
2: I'm surprised he didn't make a desperate power move to say that gambling was fashionable and <laughs> try to use his clout. To- <laughs> overturn the law it's
0: cool to be illegally gambling why don't you come to my underground underwater gambling operation no alligators allowed
1: Uh, so this was his, his decline, and he, he basically died in poverty with one of his mistresses, her name was Juliana Popjoy, which is just a fun, fun name, basically taking care of him in his old age. He died at 87 in 1761, mm-hmm. and the city rallied together to give him a humongous lavish funeral, but they did bury him in an unmarked pauper's grave. So a little bit of a mix there. Oh, yeah. So he was famous for a few other things. So he basically popularized different kinds of social conduct Mm -hmm. and he made it more socially acceptable for different classes to mingle, which really made it possible for interclass friendships that would not have been possible in London, which is pretty cool.
0: Just picturing, like, a beggar and, like, a king just shaking hands.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I probably didn't go that far. It was probably, like, we can all gamble at the same table. We're not
0: so different, you and I. (laughs) No, my lord, we're not so
1: different after all. (laughs) And he had other duties. Like, he would um, help to broker marriages between Mm. people, escort wives who were in town without their husbands. (laughs) Mm. So he just had a lot of social wheel greasing
0: basically. Made it fashionable to grease your wheels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if I'd
1: go that far. Um, Yeah, he brokered marriages. He he was also a gambling regulator, which seems a little suspect to me if this guy with a huge gambling problem is a gambling (laughs) regulator. But apparently he would... um, Restrain people when he thought they were betting too much or if they were compulsively gambling. And he would warn who was a card sharp and who wasn't and stuff like that.
0: Made it illegal to win against him when he gambled. <laughs> you have a problem,
2: sir. You're gambling too much. Get him out of here. I'm, I'm hemorrhaging cash. <laughs>
1: So I didn't see this in my research, but when I went on a, a walking tour with, in Bath with my family, our guide said that Bonash would actually just stand at the door at balls and like say, yes, no, yes, no, like you're fashionable enough to come in and you are not, like Whoa. all kinds of stuff like that. So I don't, I don't know how true that is, but it was part of the walking
0: tour. So he was the bouncer? Bow, bo- bowouncer? Bow, The bouncer. Bouncer. The bouncer. Oh, yes. Sir. Yep. He was <laughs> <laughs> the bouncer at the ball. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, he was just a uh, flamboyant man who enjoyed social life and made it so that everyone else could, too, to his liking.
2: (laughs) I wonder if he was just... If he was, like, truly a trendset... Like, because a lot of those things sound so familiar. I wonder if he was just, like, either... A, a trendsetter, or he was just like way ahead of his time. And he, is, sort of... he
1: was a trendsetter, according to the the walking tour guide. He said Bo would just be like, oh, this style of jacket's in, and then all of a sudden it would be in, and the next year he'd be like, no, it's out, this is in now. And he, um, well, the phrase I read on the BBC description of him was that he had foppish bravado. <laughs> which I really like.
0: That's very good.
1: So he's just a fun, eccentric character who organized the social life of Beth, and Propped it up to its uh, most popular heyday. He sounds lovely. Yeah. Oh, so. Quick sidebar though. Wow. So, Juliana Popjoy was devastated after he died, and she made a vow to never sleep in a bed again. So, instead of living in her house, she moved into a hollowed out tree <laughs> 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 and lived uh, there for about 40 years. Oh my god. And I, I read that line on Wikipedia, she, and it she was went like.
0: full my side of the mountain.
1: And it was just like, that's ridiculous. But Wikipedia linked to her obituary where it's, like, an old-timey article said that she lived in a hollowed-out tree and occasionally would come out and sleep in barns. Like,
2: no. Oh, my. So, I'm imagining that she was at, at his deathbed and was just like, <laughs> remember. It was Juliana? Juliana. Juliana, remember.
0: <laughs> Better to
2: live in trees than houses. <laughs> and she just was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Bo, I'll do it.
0: No, I I picture it a little more like this, Uh, Mariana. Beds aren't fashionable anymore. What's fashionable is sleeping (laughs) in (laughs) trees.
1: Yeah. So I wish I wish had more information about why.
0: Why she slept in a tree?
1: Yeah, why'd she pick a tree?
0: Because um, maybe... she just
1: found not to sleep in a bed. Yeah. And then moved into a tree. Maybe there was a cool
0: old hollowed out tree that uh, kept the wind off. Maybe the, the
2: temptation would have been to. She couldn't sleep in a house with a bed because she's like, oh, that, that would be kind of stupid. To. Yeah, like, it's yeah. too easy for me to fall back into my old habits of sleeping <laughs> on a bed. So. Maybe,
0: <laughs> maybe the tree was a secret entrance to an underground gambling den where she Ooh. lived her life as Beau would have wanted.
1: Ooh. Yeah. That's that's a good idea.
0: Mm mm-hmm. mm hmm. Called the Bosino. Casino. casino, <laughs> casino, Casino. Yeah, there we go. And she oh. she needed a little seed money to get it started, so she sold seeds from a tree.
1: She was living in the tree. Yeah. Be close to the boughs. <laughs> oh.
0: Oh. <laughs> she lived in a tree and then she would take the uh the, the the wood from it and she would work it and she would make bows.
1: I think our listeners should know that we're making our bodies into trees, as we're saying <laughs> <laughs> Holding our arms out like trees. Like trees would, yeah. yeah. It's important to
0: be able to visualize yeah. this. Speaking of trees, my story is about the Indian customs hedge of the 1800s. It seemed like a good, too good a transition to waste. Yeah. Yeah. So in the days when Queen Victoria was the Empress of India... The British administration in the subcontinent increased the salt tax, which was not the first salt tax, but it was particularly despised because it made it so that hundreds of millions of people in India's interior who were dependent on imported salt from the coast to survive had to pay fucking cutthroat rates for it. The British increased salt tax in Bengal from a third of a ruby per mound, which is about 37 kilograms, which is about a year's supply, to 3.25 rupees per mound by 1788, which it remained at that rate until 1879. So uh, to put that in context, the average Indian laborer made about a rupee a month, and we need salt to live. When we perspire, when our blood pumps, when pretty much anything our body does, we need salt to do. We run out of salt, we just fucking die. So in order for an Indian laborer to keep their family alive for a whole year, they had to spend Two to three months' wages on salt. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's awful. It brought in a huge amount of revenue for the British—about six million two hundred fifty-seven thousand four hundred seventy rupees for the seventeen eighty-four to eighty-five financial year. At the cost of everyone's quality of life. There were taxes on salt in other British India territories, but the tax in Bengal was the highest, with other taxes being less than a third of the Bengal tax rate. So, in Bengal, super high taxes on, on salt. Outside of Bengal, still high taxes, but ones that wouldn't cripple you financially just so that you could live. So, guys, what do you think happened with uh, with this difference in salt taxes?
1: Everybody moved to not Bengal.
0: N- no. Uh, right of travel was heavily restricted because of the caste system, because of the control of the East India Trading Company, and also just because, like, hey... It's expensive to travel, and your whole life and family and everything is here, including probably your livelihood. There's actually like a whole ancestral family of salt makers who boiled salty mud in order to get salt that wasn't from coastal region. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, so salt smuggling.
0: Bingo bango.
1: Inside tires.
0: Um. No. No, but interestingly close. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: uh, okay. Um, so what else do they smuggle salt in? <laughs> um,
0: I will. I'll get to that, but I will entertain some guesses until I get there. What do they smuggle salt in? Um, so what? after they had extracted
2: it from like mud,
0: well, so there's coastal salt and there's mud salt. And the upper class uh Indian of Indian castes castes needed to have uh, oceanic salt because of dietary law that basically said that anything that like I'm I'm mangling this. So and anyone out there who's listening, take this with a grain of salt.
1: You say that like you, you didn't intend to make. Yeah, it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so proud of yourself. Yeah, with I'm that. Right. Proud of myself, but there's a whole thing where oh, it's that. So the mud had to be boiled inside a hut. And there was a whole thing about, like, if something's made inside a house and you're of a certain cast, it has to be made inside your house. Mm. And since they wouldn't lower themselves to make that, they had to get oceanic salt. So they had to import it, which was a whole thing. So Coastal came in from there. And the British East India Company actually put an end to a lot of the mud salt making because it cut into their profits for charging tariffs on imported salt. So they they um, disenfranchised literally a multiple millennia-old family industry. That like these people barely lived off of already.
1: Hmm. Um. I'm gonna say that they brought pelicans in. Okay. Their mouths were full of seawater. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Come on. Okay, but they put a little they put a little uh little bunsen burner under the pelican's beak.
1: Well, no, snuck- and when the when the steam
0: rose from their nostrils, the salt was done.
1: Yeah, they did. They just snuck in the birds and then they did their thing. Uh, like
0: the a little uh what are they, like the neti pots? <laughs> <What>
2: <laughs> like sinuses. Uh, um I'm going to guess similarly but not this pelican's like Flintstone <laughs> <laughs> scheme that they put it in what would have they normally would have carried fresh water in like potable water. Mm-hmm. And they just put salt water with it. So their Dasani bottles just were filled with salt water.
1: Okay, so you're um, actually water yeah. mattresses. <laughs> water beds.
0: Actually both of those, water beds and bottles, are close Ooh. to what they did. So wait, we're getting close.
1: So I'll get to that they in a filled a, a camel.
0: Uh, actually camels, yes.
1: Yay What? They,
0: they did use they did strap salt to the underside of camels. Oh, oh, oh I thought it was in the humps. <laughs> no. <laughs> and they put a
2: straw on it, like a high sea bottle. It uh. just <laughs>
0: <laughs> slurp, slurp, slurp. Um no, they strapped to the underside of camels. <gasps> I was, see, high camels. <laughs> this so this uh, so there's a lot of smugg- so all smuggled from the Bay of Bengal to the interior. Um <laughs> And yeah, on the underside of camels, uh, inside of grain sacks, like covered by grain and like, or just sometimes people would just like, there was no, they
1: would fill their Bengal bangle,
0: bangle is huge, like huge line to like, so they would just like go somewhere where there weren't customs agents and just walk across the big bag, with, like two big old sacks of salt. <laughs> fill your shoes? With salt? Uh, no. Okay. Sorry. They could have get but... those
2: big boots that the British are no longer wearing, and <laughs> <You> just <laughs> fill them up to the brim with
0: salt. They're not fashionable anymore, so yeah. they sell them at a cut rate. So, there was, so they didn't have a way to stop all this smuggling easily because it was a huge line to police, right? A huge, um, a huge border, and it was pretty porous. There was a lot of places where people could just walk across, and they weren't close to a customs house. So, what the East India Trading Company decided to do was to build a wall down the middle of India and use the the salt tax to pay for it. Mm. This wall, also known as the Inland Customs Line, turned out to be super hard to build because in large parts of India, there wasn't the rock needed to build it or bricks to build it from. But, you know what there is a lot of in India? Salt. Tires. No, okay. (laughs) camels. No, We've already gone over
1: this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Plants. It's a lot of plants. So, uh, a British civil servant named Alan Octavian Hume, who was a political reformer, ornithologist, and botanist and one of the founders of the Indian National Congress, was appointed Commissioner of Customs for the Northwest Province, which meant that the Inland Customs Line was his problem. And he noticed that along sections of the line, big thorny hedges had taken root. So he began to experiment with different types of shrubs. Because of his work, the British were able to grow a thorny barrier that stood in for rock, bricks, and other traditional materials. So they built a 12-foot-high hedge to stop the smuggling of salt. The main body of the hedge was composed of Indian plum, Babool, karanda, and several species of euphorbia. And no, I don't know what a lot of those are. Before you ask, the prickly pear was also used where conditions meant that nothing else could grow, uh, as was part in parts of the Hisar district and in other places bamboo was planted where the soil was poor. It was dug out and replaced or overlain with better soil. And in floodplains, the hedge was planted on a raised bank to protect it. It was watered from nearby wells or rainwater, collected in large, purpose-built trenches, and a what was described as a well-made road was constructed along its entire length. So it was nowhere less than eight feet tall and, or four feet thick, and in some places was 12 feet high and 14 feet thick. And they specifically used the thorniest bushes they could find with as much as inch-long thorns. This
1: is so mean and innovative.
0: Yep. Yep. There were places where, where whatever they did, no hedge would grow, and they used dead hedge there. They just clipped down, t- like, cut down saplings, and hedges, and like, just dragged them into big walls. And this hedge required, like, constant maintenance and watering and patrolling to make sure it hadn't been cut. So, this hedge extended from, uh, let me see here, it was, ah, it was a total of over 700 miles of hedge. Yeah. Which is wild. So, 700 mile long, huge thick thorny hedge kept smugglers out
1: and sorry where is this it's just across india or it's around,
0: around the bay uh, no so it's um the so it's in the mid through the middle of in, india across the uh lines of the bengal province there is a map that i will see if i can post in the show notes okay. um i'll see how that works i'll see if i can post a link so, uh, in the official proceedings of British Parliament on the 13th of August, 1878, they wrote, In order to prevent the ingress into our territories of salt taxed at lower rates, a line had been maintained of many hundreds of miles in length, at one time 2,400, consisting principally of a hedge of thorny trees and bushes, supplemented by stone walls and ditches, which could not be passed by anyone without examination. It was also known as the Great Hedge of India. hmm So... You know all these guards and gardeners who uh, maintained it. So the way they, they those were staffed by almost entirely local people because it was a actually a pretty good job for them to have pay wise. It was a high pay of five rupees per month. Oh,
1: that's so you could a lot more than a the pay. You could afford labor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can buy salt.
0: You can buy a you can buy a year's worth of salt with less than a month's pay. It was a dream come true. Uh, which could be topped up with the proceeds from the sales of seized salt. So they got paid, and then they could make a lot more money by stealing smuggled salt. Now, this led to a lot of corruption, as they searched through people's stuff to see if they could find smuggled salt or any other smuggled good and seize it to claim the reward for that. And so the customs houses became a very hostile place. At any of the customs houses, they also had a little jail cell, which they could throw smugglers, which was called a chowki. C-H-O-W-K-I, which is an Indian word for police station. Now, have you guys read Matilda? Yes. So you guys remember the Chokey Spikes. in Matilda? Yeah. Yeah. The Spiked Closet? Mm-hmm. So that is directly pulled from this, because that generation of Britons still called uh, police cells chokies. Sad story. Ugh. Yeah, no, it's pretty bad. It's Chokey what...
1: like the Hedges.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. So the men worked 12-hour days of two equal day and night shifts. And there was a lot of turnover in the staff. In 1876 to 1877, more than 800 men left the service. So there's a lot of turnover. So, I'm sure you're asking at this point, what happened to all the smuggling? Mm-hmm. In some places...
1: Underground sm- tunnels.
0: <clears throat> Camel they tra- moles. They did try underground tunnels, but in a lot of places, the... Uh, the, the roots the, probably went down. Yeah, the roots went down, and also, like, it's a lot of work, and they were found. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're constantly being patrolled, these hedges. What were you going to say? Oh, uh, something.
2: Camel moles? Yes. tiny burrowing... Flying <laughs> <Okay>. pelicans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yabba tabba dude.
0: Over, under.
1: Uh, Wait. you cut a door into the hedge and you swing it open.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Burn part of the hedge down and... <laughs> Both correct. Yes. Yes. They would set fire to the hedge and then uh
1: throw a pelican over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> set fire to the hedge and then when and then go through a different part of the hedge when the patrolmen came. So like they would send people to start a distraction to set fire to the hedge and then they'd be like far away and like mm-hmm. just cut a little door through the hedge and That's then like I cut so. cut their way through while they're like putting out the fire up the up the line. This did actually unfortunately lead to a lot of uh, fire deaths. Uh-huh. They would also put a ton of salt on a camel and like give it some like. Heavy cloth clothes and armor, and they would just have a camel fucking run through it. I was <laughs> gonna say that. I, think, I was trying to think what they would put on them that wouldn't tear
2: like Kevlar. On a camel would <laughs> just and, wow. Yeah, wow. Like they
0: used heavy mats and burlap sacks, and they covered a camel with it. And they like loaded the camel up with salt, and then they had this like I'm not gonna say what they used to motivate the camel because it's quite cruel, but they uh, they drove it right through the hedge. That so would be like a camel would just. Barrel its way through. You ever want to
2: see your camel wife and camel kids again? <laughs> you're gonna put on this vest and you're gonna run through this. Edge.
0: Alexander Hamilton, no. <laughs> Joe Cool, no. <laughs> There's my two famous camels. I know. Yeah. They would also um, places with less hedge, or there were dead hedge or walls, and they would uh, go on foot and carry huge bags of salt. And if they were spotted, they would drop the bag of salt, and run. And since the guards were paid to recover smuggled salt, they would just go for the salt, and the person would be able to get away. So, the hedge did reduce smuggling, but at what was eventually seen as an unacceptable cost. Because apart from the pay of all these dudes to maintain this hedge, of five rupees a month, having to buy all this water, and keep all these plants maintained, and pay for rewards for finding smuggled salt, it also led to clashes between smugglers and custom officers. Including in a time, an event in 1877 when two customs officers attempted to arrest 112 smugglers.
1: Their odds are not good no. for them.
0: It turned out about how you'd think. There was a lot of clash between customs men and smugglers, and led, which led to a lot of deaths, imprisonments, and a lot of bribery between customs men and smugglers.
1: London um, was just like, why are we doing this again? Just for money and to be mean? I guess we can stop. Uh, they're like,
0: uh. For money, huh? Well, it took them a while to discontinue this. Yeah, manufacturers of salt were killed for their salt. Trade was paralyzed. So they would extort people just to get through the hedge. Yeah. It was pretty bad. So what ended up getting the hedge torn down was the British viceroys of India thought it was an impediment to trade. Because it was. And they didn't feel like the tax collected to the benefit of the East India Company benefited anyone else because it didn't and in the end after a lot of campaigning and speeches the viceroys won after all the work it took to build the hedge over like 20 years it was abandoned in 1879 it was fully torn down uh, when india became independent in 1947 now the salt tax in india remained uh until our favorite uh indian activist gandhi was one of his first major activist things what what were they called protests protests was his march of salt where he marched from town to town gathering followers and marched to the sea and taught everyone how to make salt there <laughs> as a protest for the salt tax which was much lower than it had been but it was still a tax on a necessity of yes. life That's so cool. and that, that was actually what they used as a proof of concept for his idea of nonviolent resistance. The hedge of India is gone today but a lot. it was one of the only surveyed straight lines for a long time and so it was used for a lot of the highways in India that are still extant today.
1: Okay, at least one
0: good thing. Mm-hmm. The tax reform that happened uh, from Gandhi's activism was what ended all the smuggling. And a quote from Sir John Stachey, who was the minister who approved the tax reform after all this nonviolent resistance, later described the customs line as a monstrous system to which it would be almost impossible to find a parallel in any tolerably civilized country. Hmm. So if you want to learn more about the Great India, you can read Roy Moxham, that's M-O-X-H-A-M, uh, his book, The Great Hedge of India.
1: Turn plants against people.
0: <laughs> yeah, not the natural order of things. So yeah, that uh, that is my story. I told you guys it was going to be pretty rough.
1: <laughs> but like, how could pelicans be involved?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I could.
1: feel like I had a lot of good ideas that were just shut down. <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, just like the pelicans would have been. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh no, you're let let's let's brainstorm some pelican related
2: things. They wouldn't have shot down the Pelicans. The Pelicans were carrying the salt. They would have gotten a reward for it.
0: It's true. Pelicans would have probably uh turned state's evidence with all that salt.
2: Yeah. Probably would've turned out that the like it's just some deep sting thing, like the customs houses had already paid off the Pelicans. I don't think the Pelicans are the good guys.
0: No. Pelicans are definitely the bad guys in this story. And the land
2: pelicans, you know, also known as camel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think they probably would have just turned state's, states evidence just for a drink of non-salt water, because they were probably really thirsty from having all that salt in their bill. Yeah. Yeah. Pelicans are terrifying. Yeah. Like, they'll eat smaller birds.
2: Oh, Yeah, yeah they do.
0: <laughs> they do. They're not good birds.
2: <laughs> uh, I saw a video once of one of them, like, eating a pigeon, and I was just like, oh, my God. And then you see that, like... I've uh, seen pictures on the internet of, like, a pelican, like, doing the same thing to a cat or, like, putting its beak around a cat, and everyone's like, look at the cute thing he's trying to eat, it. I'm like, he is. He, he is. If he could fit that whole cat into his beak, he would.
1: Did the cat escape?
2: Yeah, the cat was just like, uh, leave me alone. Because <laughs> it was kind of like just a cross, like, the cat, uh, he never would have gotten the
1: He could have eaten the kitten, probably.
2: There was no oh. kitten, though. Good. But, yeah.
1: It- That's because he already ate the kitten. Yeah. Oh, my God. You
2: came back. The mom was just walking away, just being
0: like. <sighs> it makes all those children's cartoons of a child being carried away by a pelican much darker.
2: I, think I don't think stork, I've ever seen that. Isn't that? Are you thinking of a stork?
0: I'm, no, I'm definitely thinking of like a kid sitting in a pelican's big old mouth, and the pelican's flying. Mm, Is this just something? It's I, not a
1: cultural reference, I know. It was
0: like a Roald doll book: the giraffe, the Pelly and me. I don't
1: know.
0: That's about a kid who makes friends with a giraffe and a pelican and rides around the pelican's mouth. Why but now we he all just know that he'd be sit on the giraffe giraffes can't fly. So they but left they their giraffe so friend behind? No, they once, the giraffe did other stuff, too. He, like, climbed the giraffe. I think there was a monkey, too. It's been a while since I've read this roll Doll book. Oh. I think they do so some... there's
1: at least one kind pelican.
0: <laughs> you
2: really are on a pelican platform right
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> Campaign to reform pelicans.
1: I think they they have utility that were mm-hmm. Yeah, they could be
0: paint buckets. They could be trash cans. Uh, you're <laughs> thinking <laughs> of the Flintstones, though. Like, all the, <laughs>
2: Where they would use their a- as animals as tools and household appliances. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I think Jackie wants to re- return to a, uh, a Flintstone society.
2: That'd be cool, like, if you had a little pelican decoration, like a key bowl. <laughs> you can just like at a party you just toss your keys in there or like your mail or I'm thinking of a swingers party actually yeah. where everyone yeah. tosses
1: their key into a
0: ball alright Who- reach <laughs> the pelican's mouth whoever's key you get you're going home with and if and if he eats your hand well guess guess you're
1: out of luck you're partnered with the pelican
0: you're partnered with the pelican you gotta you gotta fuck that pelican uh anachronismo you gotta fuck that pelican <laughs> I'm glad we have an explicit tag on this podcast. We do? Yeah. We have to, right? We swear a lot. I don't. I fucking do.
2: I'm trying to think of a good segue between that story. You know what? Pelicans are at sea. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so is the island of Guam. <laughs> yeah. No.
1: I also did say moving on, so you could probably just go.
0: In. Mm-hmm. <laughs> moving on, now that you've put the no, that was pelicans No, that was
1: a rude transition. So you can you can pick uh,
0: a better. Moving one. on, now that we've <laughs> talked about plants growing, we should talk about war. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hmm.
2: Wait, yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. Let's have this as one of our little hypothetical questions. Okay. What is a good transition between this past this last story? The Hedge of India, and the capture of Guam in the Spanish-American
0: War. They're both about colonialism. That's true. That's true. Boom.
1: I don't know much about Guam, but in my mind it's lush with plant life.
0: Uh, Oh, I don't know much about Guam, but I do know that a camel could probably barrel through a good amount of soldiers if it was sufficiently motivated. Well, it's funny you should ask.
1: Were there camels in the takeover of Guam? No,
0: but the...
2: The, no they didn't even need to bring out the camels okay so the capture of Guam was actually a bloodless victory for America in the spanish- American war mm-hmm. so it uh, the war started in 1898 and there was a a cruiser called the Charleston that was making its way from California to Hawaii where they got a letter from the Navy that the start of the war that they wanted this ship to capture the island of Guam.
1: How did a boat get a letter?
2: Another boat <laughs> intercepted it and
0: or... wrote the letter with his little boat hands, <laughs> and it had a little a little postman satchel over the side. I'm just imagine, like hello, tootsman. Um, so there was a... a little
1: neighborhood mailman just goes in a circle in the ocean,
0: <laughs> a little, little rowboat.
1: Boy, there mail for you.
0: There's
1: uh, <laughs> just like a case where you put a, a bag of mail and you just <laughs> picks
0: it up. You just throw a bottle into the sea with a little letter inside, and eventually it'll get there. This is already much lighter hearted than my one. <laughs> yes.
2: The cruiser went to Hawaii and it was joined by like three troop transport ships mm-hmm. that had the, that had the letter. letter just ordering that they take the Spanish island of Guam, which had been under Spanish rule since the 17th century. So, That's a long time. the crew was just very eager to fight, even though they had no idea like what sort of armament armaments would be there on the island like they were expecting that at worst there could be a thousand men on the island like heavily fortified and have naval ships there and so along their cruise there the men though were like really eager for a fight so they practiced throwing empty cargo boxes into the sea and like shooting at them with cannons (laughs) to make sure that they were ready to shoot at like forts and they were all full of confetti yeah Congratulations, men. It's Johnson's birthday today. (laughs) So we're going to let him shoot this box full of confetti and birthday
0: cake. Then he's got to swim out and get birthday cake for all of us. Before the the pelican. the mail
1: ship will bring a letter from his grandma.
2: (laughs) Cut the cake, Johnson, with this cannon.
1: So who are are they fighting the people of Guam or the Spanish...
2: The Spanish, like army that they expected would be on there. Okay. okay. There were islanders, there were merchants, there were Spanish soldiers, and it was ruled by a Spanish governor.
1: Okay. I'm um, just trying to think of, yeah, like... like, how, if I should be rooting for the Americans, or if I should be like, uh, no, America, stop being colonial power.
0: I mean, I feel like you should always be rooting against colonial power.
1: Yeah, but now it's the Spanish colonial power versus the United oh, I see, States. I see, I see, power? I'm just not sure.
0: Let's root for Guam. The Guam- The, the Guamese? That's not right. It's
1: not, but I don't know. The people of Guam—they
2: actually have very little part in the story of how their island got uh, switched hands in a major battle. Okay. Okay. So Jackie, you're so torn on who you're who you're rooting for. I mean, there's no no good guys. I'm not rooting
1: for anyone. I hope they all kill each other, and then the people of Guam are like, "Sweet."
2: I headed this with this was a bloodless battle of I the Spanish-American still... Yeah,
0: because they, they all got choked to death. No blood there. They all got swallowed whole by pelicans. We're
2: throwing a peace party <laughs> at the lagoon. <laughs> Come join us.
1: Hope that crocodile's not bad.
2: <laughs> By the time they reached Guam, the captain was Captain Glass. was very confident in his uh, soldiers' ability to shoot at armaments, and they were getting ready, and they were psyched up, and the men were excited for a glorious battle. Then they get to Guam. There is one merchant ship in the harbor. <laughs> the <laughs> battlements are not maintained. There is no sign of any like military presence <laughs> anywhere. So they approach Guam. Bomb, and they start shooting cannons at the island and there was a group of uh merchants on the island including a francisco portusach i don't know if that's
0: a fr- francisco what sack
2: portusach s a c h like p o r t u s s a c h i tried to look up the pronunciation i could not find a youtube video so portusach I guess so. Francisco Portusach and his brother and some other Spanish officers or like governing officials were just on the island, like watching this <laughs> ship start to shoot their fire their cannons, and they did not had not received any letter that Spain and America were at war, and they were like, "Why are they shooting?" Them? <laughs> oh, so they thought that they were saluting them. And they were like, wow, we don't have any cannons to shoot back. So they started to send like two, some soldiers up to the capital city to like see if they could find any like cannons to give them a salute fire back.
0: <laughs> Be like, oh, that's nice of them. Why are they here? Oh, well, we, we should, we should make sure that we've gotten a nice welcoming party for them.
2: Yeah. So instead of doubling down or anything, they were just like confused as to what the ship was doing and just thought it was a courteous thing. So they wanted to check out what was going out. So all these like, uh, These uh, governing officials just rode out. uh, Francisco took them out in his merchant ship. They rode out there and they got on board, where they were immediately told about the war and that they were now prisoners of war.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine being glass? Though I would be like, wait, they don't know we're out. Are we really at war?
0: Maybe I'm. I'm gonna send a letter back. Is it April (laughs) first? Check the calendars. Maybe they send it on April 1st. It's hard to get mail, let's see. <laughs>
2: There's one guy in a rowboat, but he doesn't show up for a long time.
0: And he doesn't own a calendar. They don't pay him that well.
2: That would be amazing if, like, the the American warship and, like, the Spain postal ship were neck and neck in a race to Guam.
1: Like <laughs> We must get news before.
2: So, yeah, these uh, officials get told that they are prisoners of war and that they're put on like on a parole like they aren't just like tell the governor it's got to surrender immediately not a huge military presence on the island but it turned out that this uh Francisco um when he took his merchant ship out was flying an American flag which they were like why are you why are you doing this like cuz it would have been against the law unless he was a US citizen so they were Like, they were confused as to why he was flying this American ship, and he turned over his naturalization papers or citizenship papers that were, like, from 10 years before. So when they got to Guam, there was one or two, because he and his wife and maybe their children, like, there were some American citizens on Guam at this time, which I'm glad... I don't know what would have happened if they had just been there when the Spanish found out that they were at war. Like, if they would have been like, Sorry, Merchant dear." (laughs) you're under arrest but yeah as it turned out he was just like the only american citizen there so they were like great you want to start trading because we need stuff that you would be selling from your little merchant operation
0: i do like money
2: i do like not being a prisoner of war
0: (laughs) (laughs) well twist my arm my note i didn't didn't mean actually twist my arm
2: (laughs) so this francisco guy goes back to then travel to the capital city to let the Spanish governor know that his surrender is expected. So he and his brother, on the way back, meet the soldiers who were struggling to carry the artillery pieces back. <laughs> from.
0: Do you still need these cannons?
2: No. Well, they had already gotten the news. And it was like, no, that's not a solution. Like, <laughs> just take the cannons back. So they were just on the road, apparently just several soldiers, just pulling these two little cannons back to the uh, the capital city. What a day. Which is just, it, that's just the cutest part of the story. Uh, They're just like, we need to get these, and like, you know, show some composure, like salute the, this American warship, and then like, just be like
0: send it back we're being invaded Uh, Uh, yeah uh, cheese and crackers
2: so um i'm not sure if the brothers were actually what they had done in the capital apparently they did not meet with the governor because when francisco got home from the capital city he had a letter from the governor saying that if you give any assistance to the american men of war you will be executed tomorrow morning at the beach so the governor was not too was trying to double down and not uh surrender immediately because he also sent a letter to the captain of the ship saying that it's like, well, you know, it's good to hear we're at war and all, but, um, I actually, I can't, because of the military laws, I actually can't come onto your ship and surrender. So he was just kind of like buying time mm-hmm. and, and trying to be a little, little stinky butt, I believe <laughs> is the word used in Wikipedia uh, to describe him.
0: I, I, I heard the, uh, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that term. I heard the term was, a. Uh... Full neck. Full neck. Yeah, full neck. You know, a neck with a head on it. Instead of sneaky butt. Well, because he didn't want to get his head chopped off. Bye. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, <laughs> I guess this. I guess this joke was a flop. I guess I'll just.
1: Um... I wasn't sure if it was a joke or if that was a real term people used. No,
0: nope, nope, I nope, wasn't nope. sure either. <laughs> uh, curse my incredible ability to sell stupid things as facts. <laughs>
2: so the the merchant actually went to the captain and was like i might get executed if i trade with you but the captain just kind of sent a strongly worded letter to the governor just being like yeah you're gonna meet us on the beach tomorrow at which time you're gonna be given a letter that's gonna give you the this ultimatum of you surrendering or us just coming ashore and and dragging you out um and so they did <laughs> The story has a, comes to a dramatic, like, there's no more anecdotes about, like, finding this American citizen who's trading with them, finding the artillery, then, like, from there on, it's just, like, pretty, like, straightforward. They send him this ultimatum, he meets with this representative from the captain who's like, great, you have 30 minutes to decide if you're gonna surrender or not, and then they went into a little, like, house and talked about it for a few minutes and then gave the former uh, letter of surrender so the spanish officials were taken as prisoners mm-hmm. and cool little thing is that till they got a true like governor from the united states they let francisco be the governor
0: of um well,
1: this <laughs> guy just happened to be there and like it's all this stuff
0: what if he's the one who sent the letter
1: oh, oh. Spooky. what if there wasn't a real war he just wanted his own colony just
0: scheming but he only wanted
2: it for a few months until so he they realized replaced.
0: he wanted he wanted to just you know, do, a little, do a little smash and put grab. it on his resume a um, little great in your resume governor of a colony in guam
1: just got like a bad diagnosis and was like i'm gonna make the most of this
2: so yeah he got to be a uh, governor of the island put that on his resume for a few months so guam citizens didn't have any they weren't
1: in the story at all
2: no they weren't they did not wind up drowning a bunch of american
0: and spanish well you know that's that's a pretty big twist i wasn't expecting they weren't going to drown anyone
2: yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah it was a peaceful uh transfer and that i believe was the basis for then guam to become a territory because it was peacefully and in about 24 hours removed from spanish control Without just with 13 shots sort of fired. I don't think it even like hit any fort, like armaments or anything. So. Yeah. Just
1: a bunch of birthday cakes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Send a letter to Washington. We need more birthday cakes. My
1: speech birthday party is ruined. You,
2: American merchant, do you sell birthday cakes? <laughs> the men on board uh, have a lot of birthdays coming up. What about confetti? I- and piñatas? <laughs> You keep this up and we'll make you
1: governor.
2: <laughs> yeah, so. How sorry How about
1: that... fun <laughs>
2: If And then he gets the letter from the governor. If you give any of the fun and birthday cakes to the Americans, it'll be your head.
0: Your head is a fun pinata for them to, to bust open for people's birthdays.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it was one of those stories that as I was reading I was like, man, this is great, this is great, this is great. And then, like, the actual surrender was just a very, like, well, yeah, like the Price is Right.
0: Uh, <laughs> 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 so now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, What If They Met? Oh, what if they had met? What if these people had met? They're from different times and places. But what if these two had met? We're going to speculate. On if these people had met, they never really met. But what if, yes, what if, yes, what if they met?
2: I kind of wanted to do a uh, what if they met, like, in the vein of, like, Blink-182 or Green Day, like, <laughs> the fans.
0: Uh, so more like... I wonder what would have happened if these two people had met. If these two had met, I bet they could have been friends or may be they would have been enemies. Let's talk about if these people from history, if they had met on the boulevard of broken dreams. <laughs>
1: That was good. Yeah. I like that one. I think
2: we should do that every time. <laughs> just take a popular song and cover it with a what if they met.
0: Yeah, you know, ruin it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So, you know, what's on everyone's mind. Mm-hmm. What if Bo Nash yeah. had met a giant hedge?
2: Would it have been fashionable?
0: Hot or not, giant hedges.
2: <laughs> He's just picking, like, smugglers coming through the hedge. He's like, yes. yes.
0: No. Yes. Love what you've done with the camel. You're, you're in.
1: More Kevlar. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I can arrange for a marriage between this camel and that camel.
0: <laughs> Grab their heads and slowly force them to kiss. <laughs> or if he was just like, uh
2: salt, huh. I think uh, pepper is the new thing you need to live.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you can grow it anywhere in India? Almost literally anywhere. <laughs> now who wants to gamble on how many men can run through this hedge? <laughs> Uh, my dear, my dear Mar- Marianne Pop Popjoy, you're going to live Julia. underneath. My dear, my, my dear Julia Popjoy, you're going to live inside Julia. this head. My dear Juliana Popjoy, you're going to live inside this hedge once I die. <laughs> okay.
1: But like, it's not clear to me that he had anything to do with her choice. <laughs> All right. To live in the tree. just Wait. It just happened after his death. It seems like it was grief-related, but yeah. there's no direct tie.
0: Maybe he died in a bed, and she just couldn't bear to look at beds anymore. Maybe? Yeah. Maybe, what if she had, like, lived in this tree, and the guy who designed the hedge saw her living in the tree, and was like, she can't get out of that tree except for that one hole. Wait a second. Wait a second.
1: <laughs> what if the tree bark was separated to be more of a line, and she represented the saltless people of Van Gogh?
0: my god uh what if that merchant uh you talked about the american merchant, had gone to bath and tried to get into a party i
1: feel like francisco would have had some foppish bravado of his own since he was really willing to just side with the americans after you know his livelihood was with the spanish (laughs)
2: hey but he was an american citizen though
1: only for 10 years
0: (laughs) it's not that long (laughs) <laughs> so like a seventh of your lifespan, hardly like a drop in the pan.
1: That's like one fourth of how much time Juliana spent in the tree. Yeah, come <laughs> so... on.
0: that's like saying that Juliana would have wouldn't have betrayed her tree if Bo had, had back come to back, to, back life. to life. No, it's nothing like Bo that. If Bo had come back to life, do you think she would have moved out of the tree? I think she would have like seen it as justified. Like the tree probably brought her back to life. Mm. I mean I hope so. I
1: don't
0: know. Maybe she would have forced him to move into the tree and then everyone would have started doing it because it was fashionable all of a sudden. That
2: would have been cool. Yeah. It's
0: weird though, like how big of a tree? I don't know.
2: I know this is a non sequitur for the what if they met by this Well, let's just keeps let's look event. at that
0: uh, the old children's book, uh My Side of the Mountain. So, trees grow pretty big. Get an old rotten oak and burn out the inside of it with a torch that you fashion yourself. You can go and steal a falcon from their mother's nest and train it to be your constant companion. Uh, you can make hide uh, clothes, and uh, you can eventually be discovered by your family, who've been looking for you and were sick. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: I, can, I can read to you guys a... Um...
0: An excerpt from My Side of the Mountain.
1: <laughs> no, uh, Juliana's obituary. Um, and pardon me, because their S's are F's and i'm going to mess that up well here. Sure, sure, sure so at bishop Strow, her native place near warminster in wilts the celebrated juliana popjoy in the 67th year of her age in her youth she had been the mistress of the famous nash of bath and after her separation from him she took to a very uncommon way of life her principal residence she took up in a large hollow tree now standing within a mile of warminster on a lock of straw resolving never more to lie in a bed, and she was as good as her word, for she made that tree her habitation for between thirty and forty years, unless when she made her short pilgrimage, short, short peregrinations to Bath, Bristol, and the gentlemen's houses adjacent, and then lay in some barn or outhouse.
0: Just like Beau would have wanted.
1: It's just, it's weird.
2: This is very weird, <laughs> So what if you think, like, those Spanish soldiers trying to carry the cannons were pelicans trying to fit them into their, <laughs> these artillery pieces into their giant
0: beaks?
2: They're like, oh, stop it, guys. Stop it, pelicans. And like,
0: and, like, one of them manages it and then starts flying around with a big old cannon poking out of his beak. It <laughs> gets down, and they're like, no, we don't
2: need them anymore.
0: And he's like, okay.
2: you, you serious?
0: <laughs> and then uh, the Wright brothers see it, and they're like, I have an idea for a revolutionary new method of waging war. <laughs> and then roald doll sees the pelican and he's like what if that
1: what, what if this if that is a delightful children's story
2: <laughs> instead sort of a horrifying reality of pelicans stealing babies and he looks down at the
0: giraffe he's riding and he says what do you think mr <laughs> <It's a> giraffe <laughs> the giraffe is like put me in it you've been promising that for years
1: you say I'm your muse, but I never appear in any of your words.
0: <laughs> when you die, I'm going to go live in this tree. <laughs> my my neck will take up most of it. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us this week. If you liked our podcast, please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Oh, can we? I want to give a big uh, shout-out to Scoot Istvar, uh, who left us a very nice review on iTunes, a nice five-star review. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scoot Istvar, you know, who I believe is a pseudonym for our friend Scott Istvan. Uh, But, you know, who knows? Could be Uh, anyone. Yeah. Thank you for that nice, nice review. Um, And if you feel like reviewing us yourselves, we'll be sure to give you a shout out on the show. And, um, you know, it helps us find new listeners, meet new people, gives us a big smile, you know, all that fun stuff.
1: Actually, for those of you in the Boston area, we do have a live recording coming up. Oh, yeah. um, April 28th. At the Democracy Center in Cambridge. Mm -hmm.
0: We're doing a double bill with Improv History, who will be on right after us. So we're going to be doing a half-hour show, and then it'll be a fun uh, historical improv uh, from a reading from a famous historical book of some sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that'll be cool. And you'll get to hang out with us, who are super cool.
1: And you'll be like, wow, they're... Less pretty than I thought they were from their voices.
0: Uh, Max's beard is. Very... got a perfect
2: face for radio.
0: <laughs> I imagine Max to wear more monocles instead of glasses. Double monocles.
1: Biocles.
0: <laughs> Biocle. Yeah. Bionicle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great if we got
2: like three of our friends to sit in for us, and we just rigged up the mics and like we were, we're having really the podcast in a different room.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know the old uh, the old body double in case somebody wants yeah. to assassinate us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, we did make some uh, strong stances on colonialism in this episode. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're very strongly anti-colonialism, which is very controversial. Super controversial. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, but if you want to um come see us, we'd love to have you. Um. That's uh April twenty eighth. Yes. yeah um and you, if you if you're coming please drop us a line at uh, it's anachronismo at gmail.com or at, at anacpodcast on Twitter uh, that's anAC podcast uh, and let us know and we'd be you know really happy to see you there maybe come out get a drink with us afterwards
1: yeah. um yeah
0: so uh until next time I'm max
1: I'm Jackie
0: I'm Noel and this has been Anachronismo! anachronismo.
2: People like pelicans so much because they're go getters. They got a real pelican do attitude.
1: (laughs) Uh, Please kill me. (laughs) Image in my mind of a pelican with its little beak filled with seawater Mm. and a tiny little cannonball Mm. in there. And then Francisco, no, not Francisco, uh, Glass and his people are just sitting next to the pelicans and they're like, ready, aim fire, and for fire they squeeze the little floppy bit of the of because the pelican's beak is like floppy, expandable. So you just squeeze that part, and then the force of your hands shoots the water and the cannonball out, <laughs> and it doesn't go very far, so that's why it didn't hit Guam.
2: And the pelican dies immediately <laughs> <laughs> from this treatment. Uh, I'm imagining... The
1: pelican's fine. It's a floppy, squeezable part. <laughs> it's the squeezable part of the pelican.